The Permaculture Podcast is made possible through the support of listeners. And for the fall fundraiser, I need your help. We have two goals this year, to fund the podcast through 2022 and to complete a special multi-part series documenting the legendary work of Rosemary Morrow. To do this, we need to raise $12,000 and have raised 500 so far towards this goal. I know this is a big ask, especially after more than a year that has been hard for most of us. But if half of the people who downloaded this episode donated just $1, we would hit our goal. For those of you who don't know, Rosemary is one of the pioneers of permaculture, working and teaching in the field for 40 years. Her work is also what I personally draw upon when developing a permaculture curriculum. Together we have a unique opportunity to produce a multi-part series documenting her life, impact on, and vision for permaculture design and the permaculture community. With your donation, with your donation we'll be able to capture and share Rosemary's story with listeners all over the world. Whether you can give $1, $5, or more, any amount will help. Donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, using Venmo, at permaculturepodcast, or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, care of Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. And if you'd like to read Rosemary's words, her books, Earth User's Guide to Permaculture, Earth User's Guide to Teaching Permaculture, and the ebook A Good Home Forever, are available from Meliodora Publishing through the web store at permacultureprinciples.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. This conversation continues the series on permaculture, land, and land access, as Jesse Frost joins me to share his experiences as a small-scale farmer. This includes where he sells, what he grows, and insights into his market garden or biointensive methods, including reducing plastic around the farm, whether or not you need to mechanize with a walk-behind tractor, and the use of living paths. We close by touching on his thoughts on farming on the small side in cities, and how to reframe our mindset and the crops we choose to the resources and space available. Enjoy this conversation with Jesse, and I'll join you again after. When you're doing production on a small scale, every sale that you make needs to be the maximum amount of earning potential. So the farmer's market for us is that what I mean is that we can fetch significantly better price for our produce at the farmer's market by cutting out the middlemen, you know, not having a, a huge wholesale presence. That's where we get the most bang for our buck, essentially. And so like on a small scale, it's kind of essential to look for where your earnings are going to be the highest per item per sale. From when we were setting up this interview, my understanding is that you're also working to move away from plastic. That's probably been one of my hardest transitions over the years because there are just so many plastic items available from, you know, your spun row covers to all of your seed starting trays and everything else. And making the transition to some other pieces, you know, they may not be as durable, like if you have terracotta or something like that, or they just become so much more expensive. Is this a long-term investment that you've been moving towards, or are you just finding that there are better products available these days to make that transition? I think it's more the former. It's one of those things, if you kind of make the decision that you're going to get rid of all plastic, you're not going to succeed because it's just everywhere. It's in your irrigation. Like you mentioned, it's in your trays. It's, it's everywhere. But if you kind of use it as a long-term goal and start 
slowly ticking off items that you no longer need to use or that you can find something else. That's the only way I see it being successful is if you don't try and do it all at once, but that you slowly kind of develop a plan for each individual place where you're using more plastic than you want to be. And one of the big plastics that we've used over the years is silage tarps for the garden for ridding it of weeds. We just put the big silage tarps down and, that, and that's helped us in our transition to our new farm. But we've vowed to not buy more of it. This round that's about six years old, I think at this point, is going to be the last that we buy. And we don't buy landscape fabric. We don't put it around our irrigation. We don't put it down our main lines. We don't have it around our greenhouses or anything like that. That's no longer going to be a product for us you know, we have to slowly start looking at the places that we can eliminate it and just eliminate it one by one instead of trying to be overly radical about it because then you get in this this mindset of it's not working, it's a failure, I need plastic here, there. And then for us, it's just doing it pragmatically, step by step. I think it's, it's much more of a long-term goal. Your move away from mechanization, do you feel that mechanization was required to get your farm started in the beginning and now you can move away from it? Or if you were to start a farm again, do you think you could begin without mechanization from the very beginning? That's a good question. I mean, in some ways, we need mechanization on the new farm based solely on the quality of the soil. We have some drainage issues that we're having to raise some beds in. And just for, on our scale, we have about 100 beds. So doing that by hand is a little unrealistic for us. It would just be too physically demanding. But you know, once the beds are established, it's sort of like with the plastic where you can start reducing the need for those things over time and maybe just have a couple items that help you through uh, specific transitions or like, you know, while we're trying to figure out how to manage the living pathways, it's nice to have a mower. We have an electric mower that we've been using for that until we can figure out, is there a push mower? Is there something that could be run off a of drill, like a tilter that, you know, mowed, something like that. Like it's always trying to reduce little by little where we can. But yeah, I mean, sometimes those decisions are made for you by the property, but it doesn't necessarily have to be long-term. You know, a decision in a situation like what we're dealing with, with the drainage, that may not be everybody's situation, or it could also be a situation where we can just rent that machine for a little while and not have to go heavy in the investment. We have a BCS and we've been using it for a long time. But we're, we've resisted and continue, will continue to resist buying a bigger tractor and something that, you know, is going to require more dependence on fuel and those sorts of things. The scale that you're at seems to be that kind of inflection point where farmers who I visited and talked to where mechanization is just part of the process that one, one and a half, maybe two acres with some development over a year or two can get you ready to go without. But in that three to five range, it just becomes more and more difficult to do that, especially like, as you say, with the number of beds that you have. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's yeah, similar to the plastic, just approaching it as a long-term goal. So I'll give you an example. Maybe this is better with the plastic, but an example of this would be, we have garlic and we have about eight beds of garlic in, and the next thing that goes in after our garlic and our crop rotation is carrots. So usually what we've been doing is we will harvest our garlic, then we'll throw the tarp over top because there's, you know, residual weeds there and we'll let the tarp do that work. And then we'll pull the tarp back and then we'll plant the carrots in the fall or in the late summer. And what we're going to do this year is pull the garlic, pull the weeds, plant a cover crop, kill the cover crop, and then plant the carrots in the fall. And the goal there is 
that when you're using something like plastic to stick with that example, you're not photosynthesizing, you're not building soil, you're not feeding the soil. And anytime you're not feeding the soil, the soil is feeding on itself. So we want to make sure that as we look at our systems, if we don't absolutely need something like a new tractor or a giant piece of plastic to help us, if we can get away with just maybe a little bit more work to get a little bit more photosynthesis in there, then that's what we should be doing. But it takes a little while to get there. I think that it's okay to have that transition period and to feel okay about it as long as you're working towards that target. I always say with, with the people that I work with at No-Till Growers, you know, it's a company we run that aggregates a lot of no-till information that you, don't, you can't hit what you don't aim at. You have to have a goal. You have to have a, something that you're working towards. So with plastic and with mechanization, we have that target and we can see it. So if we do something, we need to be, it needs to still be aiming at that target. And it's where I find with a lot of these management decisions, from a permaculture perspective, we have so many systems at work on a farm, in our garden, in our orchard, that when we establish those goals, we need to be working towards one end while managing for that and understanding that there's a complexity there that we're going to be reacting to as we walk towards that end. As well as we might try to design it from the very beginning, we're unlikely to be able to just implement and go. And so doing this incrementally over time makes it easier to manage and move towards. Yeah, and you have to be flexible to an extent. It's really easy to design a farm on a piece of paper. It's a totally different thing to actually have your hands in the dirt. I mentioned the drainage issue earlier on our farm, and what we discovered was that there was a hidden drainage tile leading right to one of our garden plots, which is something that is really hard to figure out without having been on the property during a rainy season. That can be a challenge for people that you get these ideas of what your farm is going to be, but then you get there and you realize that, you know, certain parts aren't draining the same or certain parts are extraordinarily compacted and you have to use some sort of mechanization to break them up or, yeah, I mean, it can be any number of things. And so having that flexibility, but keeping the goal is essential. What are some of the processes that you have in place to not till? And what are you growing for your pathways? We can start with the beds themselves. The beds themselves are made out of deep compost. So that's a deep compost mulch often referred to as a no-dig system. We put down about six or eight inches on top of cardboard, and then the pathways are left bare to start. And usually the whole garden is started after tarping, we've done it in various different ways just to see how much we can push that. So an example of what I'm talking about there is we would mow a pasture really, really heavily a couple times to really weaken the grass. And then we would put the cardboard down pretty thick and then we put the beds down pretty thick, but that we would leave that grass, the pasture grass in the pathways and we would start managing that separately. So that's like one option. The other option is that you have a blank piece of soil, which would either have come from under a tarp, you know, you'd leave a tarp for several months and it would kill all the grass, or you could plow it up, which is in some cases can be the better option on really depleted soils to, you know, you put compost in it, you plow it up if you have to, it can actually inject some soil organic matter and get it started, get it friable. And then you would have the option of planting whatever you wanted in those pathways. We've been doing pathways for a couple of years, and we've really drawn that out a lot more this year. This season, we actually have significantly more than usual because we're much more confident and comfortable with them. 
But we've found that based on our system, because of so many of our crops are so low to the ground, like lettuces and greens and beets and carrots and those sorts of things, that we kind of do have to mow our pathways quite a bit just to keep them kind of in check and from seeding into the greens or falling into the greens. What we've discovered is that when you mow your pathways a lot, you end up with nature kind of deciding what's in there. So we'll over sow pasture grasses and that sort of stuff with clovers and we'll basically mow it kind of heavy through the season and then we'll let it grow pretty heavy all winter. So it's doing the most benefit to the soil actually over the winter and not as much during the summer. And there's a lot of different management elements there too. And there's a lot of different possibilities if you wanted to seed your pathway. So we use red and white clover, like I said, over sowed over whatever pasture grasses are there. I've heard of people using chamomile. I've heard of people using creeping thyme. On a smaller scale, you could really dial that in to have some really great perennials. Uh, We often have violets and stuff in our pathways, which do really well. And, you know, there's a lot of potential when it comes to a living pathway, but we kind of just rely on nature to make that decision. And then by oversowing those clovers, those tend to be what thrive in the wintertime in the fall. So we allow those to grow once the sort of main seeding season going to seed when a lot of stuff is, tends to go to seed really quickly. We've, we just mow it more than we'd like to over the summer. And then over the winter, we'll let it grow back and start building more soil back. And with where you are in Kentucky, that works because you don't have particularly cold winters where you are, correct? Yes, that's correct. And also another important point is that we have a lot of rainfall here. We average, I think, 50 inches. And some years we get, I mean, a couple of years ago, we got up to 70. So we have enough rainfall to sustain them. And in the summertime, that can be a little bit of an issue competing for moisture when we have two or three dry months there. Usually August, September is our driest period. So that can be a little bit of add a little competition for your crops, um, which either means you have to irrigate them more or you have to add a little bit of mulch to your living pathways to help retain the moisture there. I mean, the context is extraordinarily important on that because if you're in, a, if you're in an arid climate or you're getting fewer than, I don't know a specific number. I mean, it would depend on your rainy season, but like let's say fewer than 25 inches of rain a year you probably are not going to want to do something like living pathways. I I think it would be wiser to do some sort of carbonaceous mulch, I think, for retaining moisture. What is the role of biointensive or market gardening in your production for your farmer's markets and your vegetable production? So on three quarters of an acre, if we want to make a sustainable living, it's all about maximizing that space. And so we do this really intensively. And I can give you a couple examples that we were just working on today. For instance, on Friday, we hauled out our green onion bed. We harvested maybe like 75% of it. And before the green onions were totally harvested out, we've already transplanted lettuce into that bed. So the rest of those green onions will come out this next Friday for harvest and the lettuce will take over that bed. So there's really almost no time in between crops. In many cases, there's negative time in between crops. The next crop that's coming in is already established by the time the first crop comes out. That's called relay cropping. We do a lot of different interplantings that way just to absolutely maximize that space as much as we can. And so that's where the biointensive comes in is that there's very little time that the uh, garden is not photosynthesizing. And that photosynthesis is the other part of it, right? You know, you want as much photosynthesis as possible just for the health of the soil and the health of the the biology. And if you leave, like I said earlier, if you 
you know, if the soil is out of production and it's, it's not being fed by photosynthesis, it's feeding on itself. So you always want to have crops going in the soil as fast as possible. So for us, in combination with the no-till, we don't have a lot of weeds to deal with. We don't have a lot of bed prep that needs to happen between crops. So once a crop is coming out or is about to come out, we can go ahead and put the next crop in. In terms of our market, we don't grow the wildest variety. We probably grow 40 different crops in a season, maybe fewer, but we focus on green onions, lettuce, carrots, beets, and those sorts of things because they're good on our scale and we're good at them. They grow well in our climate and they're good in that system of intensive planting and then interplanting. And then with interplanting, some of your beds, I imagine, are monocropped just because of the way that you're handling them, but you also have the ability to provide a diversity of crops within a single bed? Yes, absolutely. And we do have some beds that are monocropped, but probably fewer than you would expect. I mentioned earlier that we had the green onion bed, but in reality, what that bed is, is a 48-inch bed. All of our beds are now 48 inches. We've moved away from 30-inch beds, which is a standard in the market gardening world because we, we see a lot more potential for interplanting in a 48-inch bed. So in a 48-inch bed system, we actually oftentimes, we do a lot of different interplantings, but one of the main ones we do, the simplest, is we just split the bed in half. So half the bed is onions, half the bed is beets. And the next crop will be lettuce will go in where the onions went in, and maybe onions will go in where the beets went in. But it, you know that bed, that surface area, that 48 inches, we'll see maybe six different crops throughout the season. So it's not a perfect interplanting. It makes more sense for our production scale, but it does create a lot of diversity within the bed. So in those roots, obviously, are mingling quite a ways laterally. So almost every single one of our beds is at some point in the season has at least two crops in it. And there are certain crops like green onions, for instance, which we sell all year, we will put those almost anywhere. So anywhere there's a little extra space, we'll throw some green onions in there. It's a good feeder for mycorrhizal fungi. And it's also just an easy crop because it's a monocot, meaning it's more the single leaf instead of like the wide dicots, like multiple leaf coming kind of flatter like a lettuce. It's nice to have those mixtures of different growing habits in terms of you know maximizing your space because they're not going to compete with each other necessarily with their shoulders, they're going to compete each other maybe a little bit with nutrients and water, but they're, the onions are growing straight up and the lettuce is kind of growing straight out and you have that canopy. And then you say that 30 inches is kind of the standard in the market garden and you've moved to 48. Is that 30 inch because of things like the BCS walk behind tractor? Yeah. Some of the typical market garden scale tools are in that 30 inch range. I think mostly for something like the BCS, when you're really trying to get some precision seeding and some precision weeding tools. For us, when we stopped doing much cultivation because of our, the deep compost mulch, that kind of eliminated our weed situation. So we no longer had any need for much precision cultivation. And then we started to realize like what we were doing was just wasting a lot of space. I don't have the figures right off the top of my head. I'm not the best with math on the fly, but if your pathways are 18 inches and your beds are 30 inches over a 50 foot by 100 foot space, that's a lot of room and pathway. So we went to 48 inches so that we could gain some of that back for growing space. And we also shrunk our beds from 100 feet lengths down to 50 so that they were a little bit easier to get around because I, I don't always have the energy or the want to jump across a four foot bed. But 
we shrunk them down to 50 feet just so it was a little bit easier to get around them. And I also realized like, even though the tools were 30 inches, there were only a few times that came in handy. And especially when we stopped tilling and no longer needed things like the rotary plow, it wasn't as handy. So we just felt like we could probably go up to 48. And we even thought about going up to 60, but we felt like at least with 48, if you needed to, you can get across it with, you know, a small jump. 60 is, I'm definitely not that athletic. And 48 inches is a width that emerges in conversations from like Mel Bartholomew square foot gardening to do a four by four bed for that method. When doing rows that are going to be hand managed, 48 inches is one that we have discussed in permaculture design to use because then you can access the full bed from a path on either side. So it's interesting to hear that you are making that move as well. Yeah. I, and I mean, especially in an urban environment, you have to maximize your space. If you're doing 30 inch beds on an urban environment, so much of your ground is going to be made to be simply pathway. And that's expensive space for any farmer because you have to manage that pathway, but it's extraordinarily expensive in a situation where you only have an eighth of an acre or less to work with. What are your thoughts on urban agriculture? Okay, so one of the things that I think about with urban agriculture is soil fertility. And in some ways, urban farms are at a disadvantage, but there are other ways in which they are at a very big advantage. So let me talk about the disadvantage first. The biggest disadvantage is with a lack of space comes a lack of an ability to fallow beds in cover crop or just leave them in cover crop for three or six months to really replenish the nutrients and get the soil organic matter and just kind of let those beds rest. That's not as much of an option on a small organic urban farm. But on the flip side of that, you often in an urban environment have better access to compost, to better compost than people who are in a rural environment who may not have a good composter anywhere near them. You can pay a lot more attention to detail because you're not managing such a big space. If you're talking an acre garden or two acres garden, and then you also have some land around it and a house to manage, that's a lot of space that has to be mowed and has to be just generally tended. And so you as an urban farmer can dedicate more of your energy to planning, to planting the things that you want, to pruning your tomatoes, to making sure that everything is grown really well and to focusing on the fertility and being able to keep a better eye on your crops and all the things that come, you know, the, the, the old saying of the, the best fertilizer is the farmer's footprints. And I think there's no place that is, exemplifies that more than in the urban environment. By being in that space and having a more intimate relationship with that land, you have a better ability to tend to it? You definitely have a better ability to see problems coming. You have a better ability to do things that maybe on a big scale would not be realistic. Like you can use more nutrient applications. You can use more compost teas. You can make small batches of compost that suit exactly your needs Things that sometimes go by the wayside on a larger farm because you're so busy with just the general upkeep and your every footstep really counts in a, in a large farm because you're moving so far. And that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time for me to go from one side of my garden to the other, even though it's you know only three quarters of an acre and covers roughly an acre of space. It takes a while and that adds up. So in the end of the day, when I'm tired, I may not have the energy to get my compost tea going or something to that effect. Whereas on an urban scale, maybe you can find that energy because you're, you have more time to dedicate to each specific bed and, and really think about it and really give it what it needs. 
from your experiences with no-till and living pathways and biointensive, are there any particular techniques or formulas that you would do differently in an urban environment compared to your current farm? I would focus on the quality of the compost a lot. Like I said, we're doing more of a deep compost mulch system. So I would take a lot of time to invest in the best quality compost and make every square foot count because here we can get away with if it's decent compost, but it's spread out over a long space, then you know we can amend that with some of our own compost and we can kind of fiddle around. And if we if the production is like 85%, then that's okay. But if your production is 80 or 85% on an urban farm for a season, that's a big significant loss. So you, I mean, it's a significant loss on my farm too for that bed, but you know, maybe in a situation where you're on an urban farm, it's going to be even more expensive because your real estate is so much more expensive. So I think that being able to focus on compost would be something that I would say is really important. Focus on where you're getting it, really talk to the producers, go and see their operation if you can, or at least get samples. And that can be great because there are a lot of the urban farms. I mean, depending on where you are, I know there are a lot of great composters that are generally right outside of urban areas that service urban areas. And that can be such a boon to being in a more densely populated area. And, you know, in terms of the things that you can't use so much are things like cover crops, but maybe you can find somebody that has some good straw or good hay that you can use for various applications because you don't need as much of it. You can invest in better quality on a larger scale. That's hard. It's hard to invest in really high quality hay when you need to cover half an acre with it or like alfalfa hay or something. But on a small scale where you can really utilize that alfalfa hay exactly where you need it, maybe that cost isn't so high. Making it easier to import if need be some of the products that you need to grow your fertility, improve the soil, and then similar to our conversation about plastics and mechanization, as you do that over time, perhaps you can trickle some of those things out of your needs. Yeah. And that's something, I mean, an urban farmer should probably accept to some extent that having a closed loop system is not always going to be a possibility. I think having a closed loop system is a really cool goal. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have that goal, have that target. But you know, in an urban environment, you're going to be much more challenged with that scenario, unless you can get other people to allow you to grow in their property so that you can do things like cover cropping and resting your soil. And I don't mean resting your soil bare. I mean, in resting it under a cover crop and letting that cover crop just photosynthesize and feed it. Closing loops and those sort of scenarios, you can work on different things from managing worms in your basement, vermicomposting in your basement, or doing microgreen production. And that way you're bringing in some soil mix maybe, but then that soil mix is making it out to the garden. Things that maybe are getting multiple uses. Mushroom production, I think is a really good option. You can do a lot of mushrooms just out of a closet. And then you can use that substrate as a mulch, or you can use that substrate in a compost. And there's ways to utilize what's around you and what's, you know, like leaves for the garden in the fall, you know, or maybe easier for you to access in a city than they would be in a rural area where we don't necessarily have municipal people picking up leaves. You know, there's a lot of potential for just let me say it this way. You, yeah, when, you, when you're on a smaller scale, you do have to kind of think outside of the box and then think bigger in a way. Think about 
maybe working with some farmers, getting some other people that maybe produce the things that you need, the compost that you need, or the straw that you need, and working with them and thinking of your farm as their farm too, is incorporating their property as part of your property and then closing the loop that way. Like just thinking about it differently than trying to do it all off of a really small piece of property, trying to think of like, how can you incorporate other industries that maybe have waste products that you can use, you know, wood chips or whatever it may be. How can you kind of think about those as also part of your property? Because we tend to think of the land as different from the ocean, but being on the land is the same as being in the ocean. We're all connected, you know, above ground as much as we are in water and, and below ground. So thinking of our land as, you know, even a small acreage as all the land that goes into it, all the wood chips from the lumber mill or all the, or the tree trimmers and all the leaves that come from your city, all of that is part of the farm, even if the farm is only an eighth of an acre. What do you think people should consider in order to scale their crops to that space? Yeah, I think that this is a really important question because a lot of times when you have a lot of land, you can grow basically anything. But when you don't have a lot of land, you have to really scale your crops to your production. And you have to think of, especially if you're trying to make a living, how fast do those crops come out of the ground? How much do they fetch at market, generally speaking? And how much space are they going to take up? Everybody loves sweet corn. I love sweet corn. But it is not great in an urban environment because it takes up so much space for so long. So better crops for a very small scale are things like grains, are things like beets and carrots, radishes, lettuce, any of your salad greens, and less of the things that are longer season and less of the things that take up a lot of space. That can be kind of disappointing to somebody who isn't really excited about permaculture and doing a lot of perennials and, and those sorts of things. But if you need that to turn a profit, if you need the agriculture that you want to engage in, in your, in your backyard or in your really small plot to make you enough money to live off of it, you will have to scale your crops to your acreage. And it doesn't mean that you can't do some of the fun permaculture things depending on where you are. Like for instance, maybe growing under some perennial trees because that can provide you shade in the middle of the summer, especially if you're in a really hot climate or, you know, using your fences for grapes and other perennial fruit, like using your edges, but using your main growing space for those high production items will help you to be able to afford those other things and to really just eke out every inch that you can of your space will also help you to find more space to do the kind of projects that you maybe want to do that are not necessarily super profitable. Because I think that when we focus too much on profit, it's not as enjoyable. Farming isn't, it's not for everybody. Some people obviously enjoy that. But I think that when we focus too much on that, we get away from what gets us excited about farming and being out in, in the garden in the first place. So there is a balance there. But the smaller you are, the more you need to focus on the items that are going to bring you the most bang for your buck, definitely be the most profitable. And that was Jesse Frost. You can find Jesse and Hannah's farm at roughdraftfarmstead.com. His book, The Living Soil Handbook, is from Chelsea Green Publishing at chelseagreen.com. And his work on no-till growing with working partners Jackson and Josh is at notillgrowers.com. Links to all of those and more in the show notes. Up next in the series is Sarah K. Mock, who I speak with about the realities of large-scale commodity agriculture 
and the impacts of policy on farming and land value. Until then, spend each day increasing soil fertility and scaling to the space you're in while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.